and the glory forever. Amen. This morning we will be going through the book of Acts, well, not the entire book of Acts, just a short passage from the first chapter, as you can see in your bulletin, uh, verses 6 through 11. If you haven't, would you be so kind to turn your uh, Bibles to Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11, and it is in the um, um, your pew Bibles in page 909. Would you please arise for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. The book of Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after that he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go to heaven. This is the word of God. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, we come before you now, asking that you, indeed that you would illumine our, our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears so that we may understand, that we may believe, that we may trust, and that we may be changed. Confessing all along that it is nothing of us, but all of your work in our lives. And so we ask that you would be with us now as we turn to the word, as we continue to worship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever taken a, um, a long car ride with small children? The, the common and what eventually becomes an agonizing question that you probably have gotten asked over and over again is, are we there yet? I take it that perhaps some of you have experienced that. And if you're asked that question five minutes into your ride, and your response is something like, no, not yet. We have another 1,601 miles, by which, by the way, is approximately 22 hours and 21 minutes by many standards, without stopping, by the way. Such long journeys require much patience for everyone. But mercifully, these, uh, these rides ultimately, yeah, they, they come to an end, perhaps uh, in a couple of hours, or it can take up to three days if you're going halfway across the country. But for Jesus, it was not just one, two, or three days. 
You see, he dealt with his disciples with, well, really for about three years. Is this the time, Lord, that you're going to restore the kingdom? Is it yet? Is it time yet, Lord? Is it time yet that the kingdom will be restored? You see, for over 500 years, that's over five centuries, Israel had been looking forward to a time when they would be freed from the oppression of outside political forces. They would one day have a Davidic king come to save them. They were waiting for their Messiah. The people of God anticipated that he would raise the nation of Israel far above the grandeur of David's kingdom and the opulence of Solomon's combined. The apostles spent approximately three years with their master, but they didn't understand that Jesus was not sent to give them a sensuous redemption that would pour out tangible riches upon his people and pass horrific judgment upon their Gentile enemies. He had first come to extend grace, the grace of God, a spiritual redemption. Jesus would bridge the impassable distance between God and man. The desire, and hence time for cosmic judgment, would have to wait for another time down the road. You see, when God the Father sent Jesus, his plan was to do it over two advents or comings. And these advents would be in two modalities, with each having a major focus. The first mode was grace, and the second was judgment. We can all think to a time when we try to explain things to people, and well, they don't get it at first, and maybe a little bit later on, they, they don't get it at second time, but maybe down the road, they eventually get it. It's true that some of us are slow learners, like myself, so it takes a couple of days, or maybe even a month or so. But the question is, how is it that the disciples spent three years with the Lord and did not understand the basic theme that Jesus was sent to complete the first of the two modalities and that of grace. The answer simply lies in the fact that they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. You see, they were not given the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Yes, occasionally they were given revelation by God to see Christ for who he was, but, but not all that he had come to accomplish. In fact, the Apostle John tells us that, that none were able to discern the truth because they had not yet received the Spirit. Let's take a look at two passages to help us understand that. The first one is in John chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. I'll read that for us, but the focus really is on verse 22. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, Forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. And here it is in verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered 
that he said this, and they believed the scriptures. We see a second passage, and again, the Gospel of John, chapter 7 and 39, reads, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Our Gospel writer, John, is explaining to us that they were unable to understand fully the plans of God, because the Spirit had not been sent for them to be able to understand. However, as we return back to the book of Acts, from which we are studying, to a time when Jesus was indeed glorified. He had died, he was buried, and rose from the dead. But had the disciples received the Spirit yet? No. We find the disciples in verse basically asking the same question. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? The Lord here in this passage redirects their focus. As for when and how the kingdom shall be established, that's the Father's business. But in the meantime, I have work for you. Instead of fixating on the kingdom, which he does not deny will one day come in its fullness, he and later two men tell them until then they will do the following. They will receive the Holy Spirit, be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, and finally, they are to continue witnessing until the Lord Jesus returns the very same way that he left. Now let's take a look at the first one here, and that is a receiving of the Holy Spirit. What is it exactly that you cannot do without the Holy Spirit? Well, without him, you cannot understand nor do you have the power to do God's will in your life. The Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the triune God, was promised by Jesus prior to his death. In John 14, 26, it tells us, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then later in chapter 15, likewise, it tells us that when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. Now, in verse 8, back in chapter 1 of what we're studying, we are told that they will receive power to be his witnesses. And that power, that is the ability, will not happen until they receive the Holy Spirit. But what of this notion of understanding? You see, the Bible is the fountainhead of truth. At every point, from Genesis to Revelation. But the major focus of it is, it is spiritual truth. Redemptive truth. It has the power to bring about reconciliation between God and man. The carnal mind is unable to discern and believe this truth on its own ability. See, our, our military over the last couple of decades has been engaged in combat in the Middle East, as you all know. And when they go up against the enemy at nighttime, they, like all other human beings, are unable to see clearly. 
But when they put on their night vision instruments, their equipment, they're able to see with just the littlest bit of light. It's the same way with spiritual truth found in the Bible. The unsafe person lives in the darkness and is unable to see the beauty of the Bible until he puts on the night vision goggles. What are the what are these special set of eyes that the unbeliever needs to see with? It is the Holy Spirit himself. Let's take a moment to see what scripture tells us about this special and necessary work of the Holy Spirit as found in 2 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. It tells us, but a natural man, an unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The natural man, the unbelieving man, is unable to discern, believe, and entrust himself to the spiritual truth that's found in God's word. But those that have the Holy Spirit can. But not only can the the Spirit-indwelled, redeemed persons understand the truth of the gospel found in the Bible, they are now empowered to proclaim and obey it. The beginning of chapter 2 in Acts records for us that the Holy Spirit did indeed come as Jesus had promised. They were now empowered to witness We see the rest of the book of Acts records for us the work of the Holy Spirit, equipping and empowering the church to live obediently, to go out to bear witness of and to Jesus the Christ. Now, it's interesting to note that Peter, the very same Peter who denied the Lord three times before the Sanhedrin, now after the Spirit had come to him, was asked in Acts 4-7, By what power or what name do you do this? And Luke records first in the next verse. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is not the same Peter that denied the Lord. This is a Holy Spirit, indwelled Peter, who is now empowered to be a witness for Jesus. Later on, this same spirit-empowered Peter is told to keep quiet, to shut his mouth about Jesus. And what is his response? For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't help ourselves. In other words, I can't and I won't keep my mouth shut about Jesus. This is the testimony of Peter's life. Is this the testimony of your life? Hmm. So we have seen that it is the Holy Spirit that opens a person's eyes, empowers that person to be a believer in and witness for Christ. Now, You may say to yourself, as I have said in the past in my life, this can't be me, right? I can't witness Christ. I'm too scared. 
I'm too timid. I am unable. That's not for me. Besides, God couldn't use me. What do you think Peter would have said the night Jesus was buried? If you were to get into his shoes that very evening, what do you think Peter would have said? I have denied the Lord. I turned my back on him. And I have a lambda on my forehead. How could God use me? Why? Why would God ever use me? This Peter is the very same Peter that told the governing authorities that he cannot help but witness Christ. If the Holy Spirit can work a change in Peter's life like that, he can certainly work a change in yours as well. See, it wasn't Peter working on his own strength, but he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. In like manner, you too are and can be emboldened to proclaim Christ. So don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit has got your back. Now that we've discussed that we can only effectively witness by and through the power of the Holy Spirit, what is this witness and to whom it is that we are to witness? The word to witness means to bear testimony. Every so often we receive a letter in the mail by, I'm presuming here, uh, by the county's justice department um, informing us that we have been selected for jury duty. This is a task that most Americans embrace with enthusiasm, <laughs> I'm sure. Now, if you're fortunate enough to be selected on a jury, as I have, you will listen to testimony given by people of what it is that they have seen, experienced, heard. It is the job of the one bearing witness to tell the truth so that the jury can be illumined about the truth. When you're called upon by Jesus to bear testimony, you are doing the same thing. You are called to proclaim Jesus as the Lord of your life. You are to give the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And not only that, but also to encourage them to, to, to trust Christ as the Lord of their lives through faith and faith alone. And so we have to ask the question, what does this testimony look like? What does it include? Well, it is your job to help them to realize, first and foremost, that they have broken God's commandments. And as a consequence, they are sinners. Another way of saying is this, that they are lawbreakers. It is very important that you communicate that first. And as sinners, they are deserving of God's wrath. But because God is gracious, he sent his son to take the punishment for everyone who will place their faith, which is trust, 
in Jesus. And as they commit themselves to Christ, they will lead a life of repentance as well. That is, to commit themselves daily to radically changing their lives to conform to a God-honoring life. And they are no longer placing their faith in themselves for what they can do to get into heaven. But instead, they're trusting in Christ for what he has already done for them on the cross. And finally, that he died on the cross. He rose from the dead and is now seated in the place of power in heaven as the king. And one day, he will come back to judge the world. And that is now the second advent that we talked about. So if this is the testimony, to whom and where is it that we are to proclaim this very testimony? Jesus answers this question for us in the passage, doesn't he? He tells us that we are to proclaim it to the ends of the earth. Every generation of Christians is called by our Lord to bear witness to him to the ends of the earth. He may call you to proclaim the gospel in Beijing or even to the most remote, remotest places on the planet, like Laurel, Maryland. But if he doesn't send you off to a far-flung location, you are to proclaim Christ, the Lord, the King, to those that are within your community. Who are the people that you're to proclaim Christ to? Well, they're your family. They're your friends, they're your parents, they're your children, they're your cousins, they're your acquaintances, they're your neighbors, they're your doctor, they're your grocer, they're your teacher, they're the plumber, the electrician. People that are within your influence, sphere of influence and contact, those are to whom you're supposed to proclaim Christ to. Now, of course, the timing and the place and all the other stuff that goes along with it varies. The conversations vary. The types of places may vary. But what you're to witness is always the same, which is what we just went through. It's witnessing Christ as their Savior, as their King, where in which they can have redemption and relationship with the great God of creation. You may, uh, you may say something to the effect of, Pastor, I'm not good at convincing people. Well, the good news is that you don't have to. That's not your job. God could have decided to save everyone with the snap of his fingers, couldn't he? The good news is that he chose you as a means by which people enter into the kingdom of God. Imagine with me, if you will, when Solomon was about to receive the queen of Sheba into his courts. He sent his representative to usher her into the palace. Now, let's give him an unpronounceable biblical Hebrew name. Let's call him I. A-I, 
just vowels. What a high honor it must have been for I. Yes, along the way, as he went to retrieve her, he must have been nervous, right? He must have felt some sort of anxiety to welcome her in, but with great enthusiasm and pride, he must have run off to usher in the queen into the presence of his king. What great excitement it must have been for him to serve his great king to invite people into the king's presence and to his court. You see, you and I, we're like I. That's how we should be. God is sending us out to usher people into his court. What a great king we serve. What a great God we worship. Are you not excited about him? You should be excited about him. He's wonderful. And say, hey, let me introduce you to Jesus. That's the kind of life that we should be leading, right? What a great king we serve. And you don't even know the half of it. As for convincing people, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the one that dispenses, well, those night vision goggle glasses, the spiritual goggles. Part of the dispensing process is people hearing the testimony that you bear. Let's look at some of the examples of what's happened here in the book of Acts. Peter relates in Acts 11.15, As I began to speak the Holy Spirit came upon them. Peter recognizes that it's the work of the Holy Spirit, not him. In Acts 16, 14, and a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. It was when Paul witnessed to her that the Holy Spirit opened her heart. After all, Paul tells us in Romans 10:14, How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? By the way, the word preacher in the Greek is derived from to proclaim. Y'all are all proclaimers. They're proclaimers of Christ. So you see, the Holy Spirit presses you into service by having you proclaim the gospel. And it is he who opens the spiritual eyes so they can see through the darkness for everyone who is to place their faith upon Christ. So don't worry about trying to convince people into the kingdom. Because the truth is, you can't. Only the Holy Spirit can. I don't know about you, but this knowledge is so liberating. 
You are not responsible for people's response. No, you're only responsible for proclaiming Jesus to other people. This brings us to our last point. How long are we supposed to do this? And I'm going to be very brief in this point. Our text tells us that we are to proclaim Christ in every generation till his return. The two men, as many commentators identify as angels, tell us that Jesus will return the way that he left, in glory. We simply don't know when he will return. We just know that he will. But until he returns, he has called his people to witness unto himself and usher more and more people into his Father's court. Where are you in this regard? Won't you actively proclaim Christ, our wonderful King that you serve? Or are you asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, change us by your word, we pray. Help us. Give us the boldness. Give us the courage. Give us more of your spirit so that we may proclaim our great Savior, the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us throughout all eternity, the one who gave himself for us, the one who continues to love us each and every day, who delights in us, who forgives, who strengthens, who protects, and provides everything that we need. Help us, we pray, Holy Spirit, to proclaim our great Savior, our great King, to a lost and broken world who needs reconciliation with our great God, the King and creator of the universe. And we ask this in the name